faithful. It's the Bloods of Old podcast. Joel Brand, your host. And we are on Spotify. We are on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast. Speaking of Apple Podcast, make sure to give us that five-star review. And by doing so, I will read that out on the show. But if you're not that way inclined uh, in giving out five stars, how about uh, your Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like us on Facebook. You can find us on all the socials at Bloods of Old. And you can use the hashtag as well. Hashtag Bloods of Old. Any little bit of support is absolutely appreciated. And uh, looking through the feedback from our last episode, episode 5, with former Sydney Swans coach from 1996 to 2002, Rodney Ede. You guys absolutely loved it. Keep the feedback coming. Like I said, every little bit of support and feedback, absolutely appreciate it. And got to be honest, uh, six episodes in, did not expect to score an interview with former Premiership coach Paul Ruse, that's for sure. Uh, There was a little bit of back and forth in trying to organise a date, but we nailed one down. Towards the end of 2020, late in December, Paul Ruse was very gracious with his time and uh, speaking with us for a little bit over an hour just before Christmas. And obviously, uh, that's when COVID in the northern beaches and all around the country is playing havoc and is still continuing to play a little bit of havoc. But he was gracious with his time. I mean, what else can you say about Paul Ruse? There's a statue of him holding the Premiership Cup at the SCG. An amazing player, an amazing coach, and an all-round nice guy. After speaking with him doing this interview, he recorded a little video message for my nan who basically got me into football and to the Sydney Swans. Brainwashing, some may say, but she's a bit crook of late. Uh, My nan, she's uh, had a bit of radiation and a bit under the weather and at the time, uh, over the Christmas period, she was in unfortunately in lockdown at her nursing home. And if you like Bloods of Old on Facebook, you would have seen the video message that uh, Paul Ruse sent to my nan. And I mean, that's something that's going to not only live with uh, my nan uh, for the rest of her her days, uh, my family absolutely appreciated that as well. And I mean, I did too. It's sort of talking about at times uh, almost puts a a tear in my eye, being completely honest. But uh, he didn't have to do that, but he did. And it was obviously uh, greatly appreciated. Greatly appreciate you pressing play on this podcast to listen to it. Not going to waste your time anymore. Here's my interview with former Sydney Swans Premiership coach, Paul Ruse. Kevin Sheedy donned my next guest, the nickname The Sundance Kid. An absolute legend of Australian rules football. A list here longer than my arm. 356 games as a player. 268 games as a coach. Australian Football Hall of Famer. Fitzroy Team of the Century at centre-half back. Fitzroy Hall of Fame. And coach of the historic 2005 Sydney Swans Premiership. Here it is, Paul Ruse. Hello and welcome. How are you, mate? Thanks for having me. Very well. I'll tell you what, uh, that catchphrase, uh, here it is. Have you considered getting that uh, on a T-shirt or anything like that, some merchandise? Oh, no, no. It's, uh, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, every time you hear it, there's a connotation behind it based on the yeah, that premiership. So, yeah, it just popped into my head, to be honest. People ask me all the time, oh, did you rehearse what you said? Not a little bit you rehearsed the night before, but certainly not that part of it. I remember seeing the banner um, I think it said, you know, one team, two cities or two cities, one team or something like that before the, as the players were running out. So that sort of stuck in my mind after, after we'd won the premiership. So nah, nah, but it was, uh, it was obviously a good moment. I mean, you could have taken something from, uh, Mark Holden, uh, the Australian idol judge, uh, maybe, uh, his repertoire, maybe touchdown or something like that, uh, would have stuck as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. You're always sort of thinking what you're going to say after a grand final, win, lose or draw, because you you, know, you don't want to be a sore loser and you don't want to be arrogant when you're winning sort of thing. So a lot of things go through your mind prior to the game, but yeah, nothing, nothing too elaborate. That 2005 Premiership and that final series uh, in particular, I mean, a Hollywood script wouldn't be able to give it justice. Um, you might be able to travel around the States there and maybe sell it and they can make a uh, motion picture about it, but just losing to the Eagles at Subi, uh, that four-goal final quarter from Nick Davis against Geelong, and of course Leo Barry, you star, not winning a flag as a player. Did that make winning one as a coach that more sweeter? You probably didn't really think about because it, it, it is very different. Um, again, it's another question people ask me about: what's the difference between playing and coaching? So, 
I mean, we played in the grand final in 96 and it was really good to get a taste of what a grand final was like before you were actually in it as a coach. So that was, even though we lost in 1996, but it's so hard to compare because as, as a player, even if you are the most selfless player that ever played the game, and I'm not suggesting by any stretch that I was, but even if you are, you're still preparing yourself. You know, you fundamentally, you've got to prepare yourself for the game. So I remember in 96 going into the game, making sure you, you know, you've, you've got good sleep, making sure you eat properly. As a coach, it's not about yourself. It's about the team, you know. So it's a, it's a dramatically different process. So to be honest, once you finish playing, you really put your playing days behind you. So to answer that question, probably difficult. I'd love to have won in 96 and I'd love to have won as a player. But it's a lot... When I say it's a lot more rewarding as a coach, it's just a different job, you know, because you've got to prepare 44 players and only 22 play in the game and you've got staff that help you do it and you're bringing everyone together. So I would certainly would love to win as one as a player, but certainly the, the coaching aspect is, is a lot more difficult. 2020 marked the 15-year anniversary of the flag. Uh, I think COVID would have uh, thrown a spare in the works, I guess, in regards to any sort of catch-up or celebration. I, I know there would have been a 10-year anniversary, but do you still sort of keep in contact with those group of players and staff? Yeah, look, it's an, as most clubs would be when they win a premiership, it's an incredibly close group. Yeah, you know, when I went to the Melbourne Footy Club, uh, the first, you know, four or five of the guys that came with me didn't necessarily play in the grand final like Benny Matthews did. He came with me. Brett Allison was, I think, the runner on the day. Georgie Stone, you know, was with us as well. And then, and then Daniel McPherson, who was part of the lead up to that, also. So the, the Sydney Swans players are really, really close. Um, so we, you know, we, it's one of those things when you run into them. You know, it's like you've you've seen them last week. You know, you just it's like putting on an old pair of shoes sort of thing, conversation starts straight away. So really close team. Do we keep in contact? Yes and no. You know, I mean, you know, when you run into them or if something happens to, to one of them, you always check in. You know, Mickey O'Loughlin, Goodsy, Ty Canelli sort of, you know, got stood down by um, the Sydney Swans this year. So I rang him up to make sure he was okay. So... Yeah, it looks an incredibly close bond when you, you go through what we did and you win a premiership. I guess uh, the COVID-19 side of things, you're kind of outside of football, but um, the effect that I guess that it's had on, I mean, not just football, the whole world. I mean, industries making people redundant and things like that. So to sort of see, like you said, you uh, gave Ty Keneally a call. Uh, anyone else within the football world that's been affected that you sort of uh, reached out and had a quick chat with? Yeah, I mean, it all happened in such a, a hurry. I think that's probably the thing that su surprised everyone. It sort of shut down the industry pretty quickly. So I think initially there was a lot of text messages, a lot of phone calls, making sure everyone was okay, and then sort of things settled down. So, yeah, I think like everyone, we were all sort of shocked. So that, that's the first thing you try and do is, you know, reach out to people across all industries, you know, because it wasn't just, obviously, as you said, it wasn't just football. People that got, I mean, they were relatively fortunate because they were able to play, but... You know, I remember even some of the restaurants, local restaurants, you know, checking in with those guys. How are you? What's happening? You know, the real estate business should have shut down for a month there. So I've got really good friends in that industry as well. So, yeah, I think it was, you know, even you know, my mum, who's, you know, elderly, 80-odd years of age, and she's sort of isolated at home. So I'm making sure she's okay. So, yeah, it was a, a very trying time for everyone and, and still is rather confusing, isn't it? I mean, because you're travelling around uh, the States and around the globe as we kind of speak, uh, is it a concern travelling? And I guess just the unknown of potentially whether, you know, you go to a hotspot or a cluster. I mean, because I know here in Australia at the moment, in the Northern Beaches particularly, there's a, a cluster and there seems to be more things popping around uh, New South Wales. And me and the wife are hoping, hoping to go to Byron Bay for a holiday, but we're thinking there's the potential to shut down. I mean... How has that sort of impacted your travel? Yeah, look, I think probably what it's seen, and, and I'm not a doctor, obviously, and you know, I'm not into politics and all that sort of stuff, but I think what I've, what I've observed is the Americans have learned to live with it and the Australians are living in fear. Yeah, that's probably the biggest difference I see between the, the two countries. Um, and it's really quite, and, and it sounds maybe a bit silly because there's way more COVID in America, but it, it's, I guess the Americans have taken the approach, it's, it's a personal your own health is your personal um, responsibility. In Australia, we've sort of handed that responsibility over the government, you know, which is quite, quite strange. And I, don't, I didn't think we'd ever see that. Now, I'm not suggesting it's right or wrong. 
I'm just saying that's the difference. If you ask me the difference between the two countries, Americans see it as a personal responsibility to look after themselves and look after their family. Australians have handed over that responsibility to the government. So it is quite... Um, we got out because my wife's American and her father was, was crook and had an operation, so we were able to get an exemption to get out of the country. So it is a bit of a concern coming back to Australia because you just don't know exactly. Like you said, there's, you know, there's 27 you know, people or whatever and suddenly we're shutting everything down. So the, the uncertainty, there's more certainty in America and, and, and more uncertainty in Australia. You know, now, again, depends on what side of the fence you sit. And again, I'm not suggesting it's right or wrong. There's way more cases in America and way less. But as I said, Americans seem to have much more certainty around their travel and around their, their business and keeping it open. Whereas Australians, I guess like your experience at the moment, can I get to Byron? Can I get to Byron? Victorians, I think, have been told not to go to Sydney. So, yeah, and that can pop up at, at any stage. So it's But the rules are just dramatically different and that's probably what's adding to confusion for people around the world. You know, what do I follow? What do I listen to? What's true? What's not true? So it is quite a, a, a crazy time. During my research, you might be able to just confirm or confirm this. Uh, 17 seasons of league football and you were only reported once for apparently abusive language. Apparently you found not guilty. Can you remember what you apparently said or didn't say? <laughs> I sort of vaguely remember the incident. I think it was a pre-season game, actually. So I always joke about it that, yeah, I got reported once and the umpire apologised me after the tribunal for reporting me because I got found not guilty. But, yeah, it was interesting. When I, it's funny because when I look back on... And people ask me a bit about your upbringing. And I remember my, my dad was just a, a real stickler for the rules sort of thing of playing sport my mum and dad both played tennis and I grew up playing tennis and I remember dad was just a real gentleman when he played my mum had the sort of competitive spirit my dad was sort of so I don't know I always felt playing football it was my obligation to my teammates to stay on the field and 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 play within the rules as much as you possibly could so I, I never really put myself in situations to, to get myself reported because I always sort of respected the rules as much as I possibly can. So, and I think that came from my dad, to be honest, and the competitive side came from my mum. So you can't recall what the umpire thought you said, but didn't say? I can't, I honestly can't recall. I can recall, <laughs> I can recall getting a report and going to the tribunal um, and I did get found not guilty. So that was good. I can't imagine Paul Roos saying anything, any abusive language, uh, especially how calm you were in the coaches' boxes uh, in the coaching days. But you were a member of the uh, North Melbourne subcommittee, which has now appointed David Noble as the new senior coach there. How did that come about? Yeah, well, um, Ben Buckley rang me and, and Ben and I have known each other for a long period of time. Um, Jack, his son and, and my son Tyler played together at the Eastern Suburb Bulldogs. So, and it was really when Shorey was still coaching and they weren't sure and, you know, they're looking for a mentor for Shorey, rang me up and said I was in, interested. And then that happened really quickly where obviously, unfortunately for Reese, that, um, you know, he couldn't continue. And, and so it sort of evolved from that conversation to, you know, we'd love you to help us find a new coach. You know, we'd like, would you like to come on the committee? And then depending on who that coach is, we'd love you to stick around and help out. Yeah, so it sort of stemmed from a conversation around helping Reese and, and helping the footy club and, and evolved into the role that, that we did in finding David and, and the ongoing role that I'll take with the, with the football club moving into next year. Because, I mean, the headline, uh, I think it said uh, Paul Ruse joins North Melbourne. I think a lot of people were assuming that uh, you're taking the, the top gig there. So for going into season 2021, you, you'll sort of be affiliated with them in some capacity then? Yeah, look, the first stage was agreeing to, to do the, the, the search for the coach. And then the second stage was probably just to, to help the footy club put a high-performing team in place and talk to them about roles and responsibilities and things like that. And then the, the third thing, which will probably happen after Christmas, is really to formalise myself and David, you know, what he believes that he needs help with and how I can help during the season sort of thing. So, yeah, there was sort of really three stages to it and we'll we'll head into stage three once, um, yeah, once January rolls around. How does that differ, I guess, from the the mentor role that you kind of had at Melbourne? Obviously, you were very much the head coach and there was a transition plan in place. So it is like a mentor role, but I guess not the same as Melbourne. I mean, there's, you're going to be there helping out. So I guess how would you 
differentiate those? Yeah, well, Melbourne, Melbourne really, I was the senior coach for three years. And for the, for the second and third year when we were appointed Simon, you know, I was still the senior coach, but part of the role was, you know, um, with, with myself and Josh Marnie and Peter Jackson was getting Simon ready for the senior coaching role. This role's you know, dramatically different it's a case of, you know, firstly, hopefully getting a senior coach that we believe is going to be you know, a great senior coach for the North Melbourne Footy Club and then working out what his skill set is, but also helping Ben Amafio and, and Brady Rawlings as well and, and Scotty Clayton in, in recruiting. So it's a bit more wide ranging um, and very much a part time role and we'll, and we'll determine what that looks like. Um, yeah, they've just, I think they've just broken up for pre-season now. They've had a, they only had a couple of weeks pre-season. I think they have a, a three-week break and then we'll have a good conversation around what that looks like. Obviously, the affiliation there, but you've got a bit away from footy, at least from the, the punter's eyes, at least, I guess, the past couple of years. Do you consider yourself a Sydney man, a Fitzroy man or a, a Melbourne man? Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, I guess now that I'm involved in North, I mean, when when you're involved in a club, you're all in. You know, it's not a case of. I think that's the difference between. I grew up being a Carlton supporter, but immediately stepped foot in the Fitzroy Footy Club. Carlton's irrelevant, you know. And I think when you're in the industry, you know, you you're present with that football club that you've been involved in. You know, last year my most recent club was was Melbourne, or this year. So you you know you, your allegiance is to the Melbourne Football Club. Um, not that you don't have a strong sense of responsibility to Sydney and, you know, know John Longmire well and, and Johnny Blake, who's just moved to North Melbourne and the players I, I know extremely well, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, when you then take a role with a footy club, you're part of that club very much. And it's, you know, you're, you're all in really. Well, how about this then? If uh, the Suns uh, are to play football, uh, Brisbane or Sydney, is there a preference? Yeah, well, they've sort of been through that that process so both my boys now 26 and 24 and they're both with the Sydney Swans Academy which they really enjoyed um yeah Tyler my youngest had a couple of conversations with Brisbane as well I think when your sons are involved it's you know wherever they feel comfortable and if they make it they make it if they don't they don't sort of thing but certainly the Swans Academy is a great initiative and they really both thoroughly enjoyed that experience not just from a footy point of view but yeah the, the learnings from it were fantastic and yeah, seeing a high-performing industry and being involved in a footy club and an academy was was a real thrill and a great learning experience, as I, as I said. I've seen a lot of your videos on LinkedIn and other forms of social media, but you're the founder and director of Performance by Design. What is Performance by Design? Yeah, we're a, a company that, for, for want of a better term, we, we take the chance out of culture. You know, we go into organisations and we set up their, their purpose, values and behaviours. A lot of companies have purpose and values, but don't really delve into that behavior. You know, what is a behavior? It's an action. Yeah, what do we reward? What do we challenge? So we spend a lot of time, and it really stems from my time setting up the same systems at Sydney and Melbourne Footy Club. Um, I've got three other business partners and we have some other people that help us out as well. So yeah, really enjoying that, really enjoying being in the corporate space. Um, and most of our work is in the corporate sector. Obviously, you know, the, the football gives you a profile and a lot of people so understand that high-performing industry, what an AFL club or rugby, you know, netball, whatever it might look like. Um, so that certainly helps some of the storytelling and some of the conversations. But yeah, we're really trying to shape people's culture and, and turn it into a really high-performing culture and really clear on what we challenge and really clear on, clear on what we reward in terms of our behaviours. And I believe you, you've said in previous interviews and it's been um, sort of, I think, on the likes of Open Mic and even potentially in your book that you, in order to prepare as a coach, uh, is it true that uh, you sort of wrote down what you did and you did like and you didn't like about your coaches? Yeah, it was the best thing I, I did. And I did at the end of 1998, October 1998. I had no idea whether I was going to coach or not. But I actually found that my coaches, the longer they'd been away from playing, the sort of angrier they got and the less empathy they had with the players. I never wanted to lose that connection with my players. So I sort of sat down and, and I sort of wrote down the things I liked about my coaches, the things I didn't like. And some of you know, really simple things, but I had that document in my desk for eight and a half years at Sydney, three years at Melbourne. And it's something I talk a lot to um, you know, CEOs, the, the, the C-suite groups and general managers. It really is, are you the leader you wish you had? You know, and, and that really is the concept behind it. And I'm so glad I did it as a player, you know, looking through the eyes of a player. What did I want from my coaches? So when I became a coach, 
I was able to hold myself accountable to the to the coach that I wanted to have, and then in turn the coach that I wanted to be. That being the case, I guess uh, your days at Fitzroy, your first two coaches there being the likes of Robert Walls and David Park, and uh, anything interesting written about them? Look, and, and to be fair to those coaches, I mean, it was a very much a part-time industry. You know, we go to, we go to work and school and some guys' college and, and Wolsey was a school teacher, Parker was a lecturer. So there was a very small amount of time to actually educate players. But when, when most of the stuff I wrote down about them was more because that's all I had. And then we transitioned to a full-time industry. So then all of a sudden you've got to work out, well, hang on, we've got... We've got more time with the players, more time to educate, more time to communicate. You know, so how do we then refocus what a coach is and redefine what a coach isn't? You know, and a lot of stuff that they did was based on time, as I said. You know, a lot of it was around, I tell, I tell, I tell, I tell, you do, you do, you do, you do. That's dramatically different. And, and Parker and Walsey would, would understand that completely because they're both extremely intelligent people and they would see the evolution of sport over the last... 30 years, but they weren't in that position to do it. So a lot of it was around positive feedback, you know, really good communication skills. You know, players don't go and make mistakes. Don't fly off the handle after a game. If you've got nothing positive to say or constructive, don't say anything at all. But again, in that era, it was a case of getting things done so quickly because you had to move on really quickly. And, yeah, we had to train for sort of three hours a night and a lot of guys didn't get there till sort of 4.30, quarter to five. We started training at five. So if you're training for three hours or two and a half hours, that takes you to 7.30. You've got to eat. So really, it's in a case of, guys, right, wrap it up. Let's go, go and have a shower, go home. So the communication levels were so low because of the lack of time that we had. I want to touch on uh, some comments that uh, Robert Walls made. It was after Sydney lost to St Kilda in round 10, 2005. The quote was... The thing that worries me is that Paul Ruse might be coaching for Paul Ruse. Now, you, you were deeply hurt by these comments. Have you and Robert Walls mended fences since then? Yeah, I think that was the most offensive comment I ever heard. And, and if you break that comment down, it, it is very offensive. Ruse doesn't care about the team that he's coaching. All he cares about is himself. And I was, yeah, I was, I was just shattered. You know, someone that I respected so highly... I met with Wolsey before I took the job and we went through some things and yeah, and I couldn't believe it. Like, like Wolsey had said, look, Paul Roo is the worst coach I've ever seen. Then that's a completely different comment. Um, so we didn't speak for a long period of time and he got a bit shitty and thought I took it out of context. And I was like, well, it's pretty hard to take that comment out of context. That mm. You are saying that I'm fundamentally selfish and the only reason I'm coaching is for myself. But yeah, look, thankfully, you know, we put that behind us a, a fair while ago and, because I spent a lot of time with Wolsey and he was a great mentor as a coach when I was a young player, gave him the first game. So, yeah, I was bitterly disappointed and I understood he was in the media, but it was just some things, I mean, a lot of things you don't get offended by because you know they're just, you know, as I said, if you had a said he's the worst coach I've ever seen, you go, well, look, that's his opinion, that's fine. But when you're attacking someone's character like that, yeah, it is, it is quite offensive and I was, I was pretty shocked by it. I mean, the comments about the Swans' playing style, it wasn't unique to Robert Walls. Uh, then AFL boss Andrew Dimitri uh, labelling the Swans' players unattractive and ugly. Also claimed the Swans were never going to win a premiership with, uh, with the way they were playing. Uh, did you ever ask the AFL for a please explain, especially after the 2005 grand final? Yeah, I thought it was really strange, you know, and I, I've said this a couple of times before. It was a little bit like the, the CEO of Coca-Cola saying, oh, look, don't don't drink Coca-Cola in Sydney, guys. Drink Pepsi. And I, mm. I was sort of like, you know, we're the only team in Sydney. We're trying to do our best to promote the game, et cetera, et cetera. And you have the CEO basically telling people in Sydney, don't go and watch the Sydney Swans. They're a terrible team. And I'm like, I, I found it strange that no one, the chairman didn't say something to him. The, the commission didn't come out and say, we don't support what Andrew said. You know, no one held him accountable to those words except for the Sydney Swans, really. So it was, it was really quite bizarre, but but sort of the opposite to what I said about Wolsey. Look, you know, it didn't really worry us too much because we knew that, that I knew I couldn't run the AFL and I knew he couldn't coach the Sydney Swans, you know. So it was more an observation and his observation around the way we played. We knew we were just out of form and we weren't playing well, but it was just a really strange thing for the CEO to say. And, 
yeah, we would probably used it for us a little bit, you know, it was sort of the us against them mentality. And obviously we went on and had a, had a good season that year. But I mean, if the shoe was on the other foot, if you were to publicly come out and say, Andrew Demetrio can't bloody run the AFL for Buckley's, I mean, there, there would have been some form of, uh, I mean, uh, blowback for sure, right? Oh, and I think the commission was weak, yeah, at the time, you know, and, and no one come out and said, yeah, well, that's just, that's just, yeah, you know, it's his opinion. We don't agree with it. You know, we, we're supporting the Swans, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it was a really, it was a really strange time, to be honest, because you, you can't have the CEO of any business coming out and saying that about his own product. As, as I said, you know, imagine the, the CEO of, of Holden or Nissan or not, CEO of Nike, you know, Phil Knight, you know, with the owner of Nike coming out and saying, oh, I wouldn't be buying Nike shoes in Australia. You know, they're, they're terrible. It just, it's just one of the most bizarre comments I've ever heard from a CEO. It just lacks leadership. It lacks class. It lacks, you know, everything you want to say about it. But again, it was, you know, we knew he, he couldn't coach the Swans and we knew that he didn't really know what he was talking about. But we had to play better. You know, we weren't playing well and we had to take responsibility for the way we were playing and play better and we were able to do that. Coaching Sydney and then coaching Melbourne, did we uh, ever sort of meet the Melbourne Mafia or, or did we come a bit more, I guess, understanding of uh, the culture in Victoria? I mean, you're, you're originally from Victoria anyway, but the question is, does the AFL have an unconscious bias against one Sydney at the time or interstate clubs? Oh, I think it's more the fact that the decisions are made out of Melbourne, you know, it's, it, it, you know, if we know the history of the AFL, it's the VFL. Yeah. So there, there's an understanding. I think when I was coaching Sydney, we sort of understood where, where the decisions were coming from. I think the frustrating thing for us when I was coaching Sydney was they just didn't listen to us, you know, like, you know, and that was probably the most frustrating thing. It, it's hard for me to say now, but yeah, cause when, when I went to Melbourne, it was interesting coaching Sydney. I was probably more involved in some of the, bigger picture things. When I went to Melbourne, you know, we had to correct so many things at Melbourne. I didn't really worry too much about the AFL then. And Gil, Gil was there and I got on pretty well with Gil. And, but I didn't have time to have too many conversations with the AFL. So, you know, there was so much work to be done. Yeah, I think they've done a much better job under Gil to become inclusive and, you know, to try and, to try and make collective decisions and understand, you know, what the, 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 the dynamics of, you know, the Northern states are. But again, when I was at Melbourne, I had a lot of problems to fix. So you didn't really worry too much about the bigger picture of the AFL at that stage. I mean, I, I mentioned that as well. I mean, the cola. I mean, Eddie Maguire was a big uh, uh, proponent for uh, equalisation of the competition, I think it was called at the time. I think you were at a presser, I think it was 2003, and I think you suggested that he gets Channel 9 to do a doco on the Sydney guys and how they live and how the Victorian guys live and just sort of saying that, hey, Sydney is a far more expensive uh, city. Uh, and, you know, just so I know you weren't there at the time, but I guess the Buddy Franklin deal, uh, from all accounts, the AFL wanted him to go to GWS, or at least that seemed to be the, the, the notion. Sydney get a trade ban due to that. And more recently, I was speaking with Jason Akamanis in regards to the 2004 prelim. Uh, they had to play a home game at the MCG. Uh, just just little things like that, that. I mean, and you said you couldn't comment too much because, you know, you you, know, you say something out of line and you'll probably be in trouble. But just from a supporter standpoint, it does seem like it's the, uh, the VFL at times. Yeah, and I think you've got to blame the commission more than than Eddie. I mean, Eddie, Eddie's the president of the Collingwood Footy Club. And the commission, for those that don't know, the commission was originally set up to, to make sure the self-interest of all the clubs you know, didn't override some of the decisions. But the commission has become somewhat irrelevant. You know, when, you know, they've really let the AFL run the competition and the commission have done things more around you know, the rules of the game and the colour of the runner's shirt and taking the runner, you know, one, two runners from one runner and an interchange and, and all the things that I don't believe that they're there to do. And, you know, the things that you talked about for, for Sydney and, and Brisbane Lions, that's the thing that they needed to protect the integrity of the competition. So when Eddie speaks or Jeff Kennett, and they're perfectly entitled to as president, of them, that's their role. You know, so what I'm saying is Eddie's playing his role as the president of Collingwood Footy Club. Jeff Kennett is playing his role. Someone, though, needs to take a helicopter view of the competition and say, no, we have to leave 
this collar in place for this, these particular reasons. But certainly there's been times, and I can see where people say, there's been times where it does appear to be a, a Victoria-centric... I mean, even the fact that we, we're playing the MCG for 55 years. I mean, you know, it's a national competition. And I had this discussion a number of times on Triple M when I was working there on Sundays. And, you know, whether, whether I think the best venue is the MCG, which clearly it is, but we're a national competition. You know, it's just, again, it's another, it's another comment where you go, if we are a truly national competition, so I don't think, I don't think we've reached that status of being a truly national competition yet. Yeah, we're still very much a, you know, Victorian-based national competition. And, yeah, you know, is it good or bad? Yeah, you know, it depends on what side of the fence you sit. It's a vibrant competition. It's a good competition, but certainly there's some frustration from the northern-based clubs. There's no, and I've, I've been in that position, as you mentioned. I mentioned uh, Jason Akermanis there. Uh, I spoke with him a few months earlier. He says uh, he helped you come up with the idea of pushing the uh, young swans, the youth of the swans, so to speak. Uh, also said he was pretty close to becoming a swan. We sort of, uh, I guess, one, your response on the youth movement, um, where that sort of came from, and I guess, two, how close was Acker to becoming a swan? Because I, I do believe I sent you that audio grab of uh, Acker's comments, and your initial reaction was, that's rubbish. Akermanis Garden becoming a swan is probably, uh, it was close. It was close. They, Andrew Allen was a good mate of mine. He came through Maine. He was the CEO for Brisbane in their first premiership, then left and went to the Swans and did a job there. And I think I think that relationship enabled it to get to that point. We did have a meeting with Paul Ruse, and I, I mean this in a nice possible way, and I don't take credit for it. But in our chat, he, he realised, I said, mate, you know, you've got to get these young guys in this group going because, you know, you look like a a stale footy club. The older guys aren't producing. They're not your future. They're not going to win you a flag. And he, it's like a light bulb moment. He said, mate, that is a great idea. So the reason that the sort of the dollars, uh, 450000 I think, geez, or five hundred, maybe five fifty, which isn't a lot of money these days. Back then it was, it was probably at the higher end for a guy of my size and shape. You know, the bigger blokes, while incredibly, incredibly overrated, uh, they do make more money. For some reason, they, they think that they're rarer. But uh, guys in my school said, oh, we could command that money. But maybe I think they just balked us at the price. Uh, but, you know, it was close. Yeah, Cam, what year did, he, what year did we meet with him? Do you remember? Oh, well, that's what I was going to ask you, if you could sort of get, get a, a bit of a timeline. Because I remember, remember as a supporter in 2003, uh, we the Brisbane, they beat Sydney in the, uh, the prelim. Uh, but and, th- and then there was an interview after it where, oh, Aka, there's been rumours that you've been linked to uh, Sydney. And I think he said the quote of, there's more chance of Jesus coming back. And it's funny because I only talk about it because Aka's spoken about it. Because a, a lot of stuff you do is private. You know, in that meeting, I would, I would normally um, keep private because I heard your audio with Aka. So I'll clear a few things up because Aka said he told me that we should go Young. So at the end of 2003, we didn't really have any older players. So I, I'm trying to work out what he actually said. And because we had at that the end of that year, Kelly re- retired, Dunkley retired, Creza um, had one more year to go. Um, Tony Locke had come back and he retired halfway through the year. Wayne Swash retired halfway through the year. So we actually were in a rebuilding phase as we went into 2003. And we actually got picked a lot of age journalists to finish on the bottom of the ladder for that reason, because we were actually, we were actually a young team that was rebuilding. So what he, what he talked about is, is fantasy because we actually didn't have an old team. Um, We had a young team. Um, So I do, I did meet with him for an hour and I'll tell you what happened. So Andrew Island said to me, Oh, look, Ruziaka wants to leave Brisbane and he wants to talk to, to Sydney. I'm like, Oh, really? I said, well, what do you think? He's, he said, well, look, he's, he's coming down. He's going to come over to my place. You know, do you want to come in and talk to him? I said, all right, look, I'll come in and talk to him. So I went in there and, again, I, I don't like disclosing information, um, but he's, he's, he's talked about it. So, A, he didn't tell me anything about young players um, because we already had a young team. B, all he did was criticise his teammates for an hour and I couldn't, I couldn't believe how much he criticised all his teammates. And then, see, he told me that he was going to bring all this staff to Sydney with him when he came. So I left the interview and my wife said, how'd that go? I said, it's probably the most bizarre hour of my life. I, I can't, I, I, it's, it's just bizarre. So then I spoke to Andrew and, and 
I said, mate, there's no way, no, we, you know, we're going to bring him to, he said, nah, nah, we, I don't understand that, thanks for coming. So look, Acker was never coming to the Sydney Swans footy club. Acker never told me to, to, I think he said something about go with young players, you're not going anywhere, because we didn't really, we didn't really have any old players. But yeah, Acker tends to live in his own world, really. So, and look, to be fair, he's a, he's been an incredible player and yeah, great servant of the Brisbane Lions Footy Club, and look, he's a Brownlow medalist, you know. So he's, and 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 been, as I said, a very integral part of, you know, what the Brisbane Lions became, which was a you know triple premiership team back to back to back, and then obviously went on to to the Bulldogs and had his issues there, and you know left, and I think at one stage he, he called me the most overrated coach in the modern era or something like that. So, um, and I don't really know him too well, but yeah, look, it was. Couldn't have been further from the truth what he actually said, but he's always, I mean, he's always entertaining. Say if the like of an Ackermanis or uh, Brendan Favola or whoever, if there was potential interest in them coming to Sydney, you would bring it to the playing group and kind of it would be a, a group decision or wouldn't just be a, well, this is what's happening? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we, we would always go back to our leadership group and we would always talk to them about, you know, the players, the, the older players that we're bringing in and we'd always make sure we ticked, the, ticked it off Um you know, with, with the boys. I mean, that was part of our system. That was part of, you know, we respected our leadership group um, and it worked, you know, worked. And often it's the players that find out more about opposition players because they might socialise with them. They might, you know, have a, have a player that played in the under-18 comp who's a really good mate that now plays for a certain team. You know, so we always, we always touch pace with our players. So, yeah, Jason was never, never, ever coming to, to play for Sydney. Was there would there be any names that might surprise Sydney Swan supporters that uh, were nixed or brought up perhaps? Um, it's it's a fair while ago now. Most of them sort of become public. You know, it's very rare because because it, there's sort of that set trade period. So so we, everyone sort of really, as you said, it sort of gets leaked out, and and most people sort of get to hear that such and such is a bit disgruntled or or wants to leave, and then you know Sydney, but really. Um, yeah, we, we had a number of conversations. A few players, the leadership group said they wouldn't play with, which is, so you're knocking on the head straight away. Um, others, they said, yeah, look, we're really keen to have them and you don't get them. So, yeah, but, but as long as you're having the conversation, as, you're long, as long as you're honest with your, your playing group, then, um, yeah, you, everything seems, seems to work out okay. You touched on it earlier about writing down what you liked about your coaches. You were in a unique position where you were coached under Rodney Ede and then you became his assistant coach and then ultimately taking the top job at the Swans. What was that like? Yeah, finished playing under Rocket in 98 and we had, you know, we had some good years. You know, 96 we played in the grand final, 97 played in finals, 98. So I had, you know, good years under Rocket. Um, and then went away in 99 and then sort of came back as a part-time assistant coach, helped with the defence and then full-time in 2001. And then, yeah, halfway through 2002, Rocket resigned and I stepped up as coach. So I always had a good relationship with Rocket as a player, as an assistant coach. And then um, I remember going to his office the day that I heard that he was going to re- resign because I got a phone call from Stephen Quartermain in Melbourne and then Johnny Blakey. And they said, oh, Rocket's given away today. So I got, I said, no, no, no. So I got up and walked into his office and it was next door to mine. <coughs> I said, mate, I've heard two people tell me you're going to give it away. He said, yeah, no, I am. So look, he was a really, really innovative coach. You know, we did, look, he did a great job at Sydney. We you know, took over in, in, after uh, Ron Barassian made the grand final his first year and you know, had some real success with that team. We just missed, you know, missed the grand final, played against great you know, fantastic team in, in the North Melbourne Football Club with, you know, with Carey and Swash and Archer and Johnny Blakey, my great mate, was playing as well sort of thing. So, yeah, I always had a good relationship with him and I learned a lot, you know, as an assistant coach under him, as a player under him. Do you think uh, his contribution to the Swans is a little bit overlooked at times? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, and any time a premiership happens, I mean, that becomes the pinnacle of of obviously what you do. But, I mean... If you look at the history of, of even Barras, you know, Barras probably gets overlooked a little bit. You know, Barras took the job when no one really wanted it. You know, then and then Tony Lockett came up and I came up the same year and then Stewie Maxfield and uh, Kevin Dyson, um, uh, Craig O'Brien. And then sort of Rocket took over. You know, Barras put the ship 
back in the right direction. And then Rocket took over, yeah, as a really innovative young coach with a, a young team and some really good players. You know, Paul Kelly, Darren Creswell, Andrew Dunkley, Mark Bays, you know, experienced players. And did a great job, you know, over a period of time and and rebuilt this organisation after... So Barras and Rocket contribute significantly to the 205 Grand Final, no question. Recently he spoke to Rocket and he couldn't remember uh, any good sprays or noteworthy uh, comments that uh, were made uh, at the Swans. Can you remember any perhaps? Oh, he gave... He gave Matthew Nix one of the greatest sprays. You should get Nixie on after the... I can't... I'm not going to tell you what it was because it's a... I'm sure there's a few kids in watching the thing. But, oh, he just... He gave it to him after we lost the final in 97, I think it was. So, uh, Stephen Carey. Ring Stephen Carey. He'll, he'll, he'll give you a couple of good ones. Oh, Johnny Stevens. I was with Johnny Stevens just recently. John Stevens got the best bake at three-quarter time I've ever heard in my life. It was unbelievable. So there's three off the top of my head. So I think, I think he's. Cho- I think Rocket's probably chosen not to remember them. Although to be fair to the coach, the coach often doesn't remember them because you just sort of you can snap like that and you can sort of forget about it and you move on pretty quickly as a coach. To be honest, speaking with Darren Creswell, I think uh, one regarding Matthew Nix was he said he'll give him three clearances just in case he uh, loses two. <laughs> oh, he absolutely. Yeah, Kreser would have been in that that um, yeah, spray after the, the, the final, and he would. And that was the same one, Stephen Carey. So, oh, look, it'd be a any look any, and even I'm sure some of the players that I coach, you know, get a room full of players in a room to talk about some of the sprays that the coaches have given. It'd be a, it's a very very if you could talk about open honestly. It'd be one of the great sportsmen's nights you would ever, ever attend, I can assure you. 2003 stands out to me, uh, particularly because that's when I, I guess I was a 13, 14-year-old kid and was really on board with the Swans because basically started following football because my nan brainwashed me from a young age to support the Swans. But 2003 in particular, a foundation year, you kind of touch on it, you know, you know, all the older players and senior players had kind of uh, retired or moved on. Uh, we're tipped to finish the wooden spoon, essentially. We end up finishing third, blooded some young players. Adam Schneider, Lewis Roberts-Thompson comes to mind. Uh, pretty sure we beat Brisbane twice in the home and away season, uh, obviously then Premiers. Uh, probably more memorable was the qualifying final, heading over to uh, Amy Stadium, beating the Port Adelaide Power. Uh, of note, though, I believe you did your Achilles heel the week of, uh, the week of that game, playing basketball. Yeah, so the neighbour a couple of doors down was a young fellow. He was going to Cranbrook High School and he knew I played basketball as a, as a kid and he invited me to come and play. I, was, I loved it. I loved my basketball. And we we're actually playing the grand final and I, I took a three-point shot and, and I thought someone had kicked me in the back of the heel. So this was the Monday night after the last game. And I thought someone had kicked me in the back of the heel. So I turned around as I was falling to the ground and I realised there was no one behind me. And I knew right away that I'd done the Achilles. So I literally went from the Randwick uh, Boys High School, I think it was, to Nathan Gibbs, Dr. Nathan Gibbs' house in Coogee. We drove straight there. He said, yeah, mate, you've done your Achilles. We had the final to play that next week. He got me in an operation the next day. I was back at training on Thursday and I was over at Adelaide, obviously with the players on the Friday and I was on crutches, obviously, during the game. And we, yeah, it was an incredible win, an amazing win. And yeah, everyone would have seen me hobbling up and down trying to get up and back to the to the grandstand because uh the round 22 prior that when i think michael lachlan uh does his hamstring kreza was in doubt somehow m- miracle comebacks played the game and you're doing your achilles heel it was a uh, wasn't looking too good early on yeah i think we lost someone else in that game might have been brad seymour or someone so we lost mickey o-, o in the round 22 about the last five minutes of the game he did his hamstring and then i think it was brad i'm not sure and then we lost a couple of guys in the final too so in the first half of the final and we were down, we were up by about, you might remember better than me, we were up by about 30, 40 points at three quarter time, but we only had one on the bench in the final and we, and they were an unbelievable team. I mean, they finished, I think, on top of the ladder three or four years in a row, court, and it was certainly one of the best wins that I'd ever coached and the players were just incredible. Uh, Kreza had an amazing game, that, that game as well and uh you know as, as did our senior players our young players and yeah to get in the preliminary final against you know one of the probably the greatest team of all time almost the brisbane lions and we just got we were worn out but we kept with him for 
three quarters and then they just kick six in the last quarter and yeah, they were a great team. And I love that theme from then on in, basically every last game of the home and away season. I'm pretty sure it was Michael O'Loughlin, Barry Hall. There's, what third player would you be taking off uh, in those last few minutes of a last home and away season game? Well, you know what happened? The message had just gone out to Mickey to come off. And I think the runner was about halfway out when Mick had done his hamstring. I'm like, oh, no, it's your worst. It's your worst fear. But it's a great point. So if, you, if you're following whatever team you're following and you want to know who the coach's favourite players are, watch the last five minutes of round 22 leading into the next week of finals and you'll always, you'll determine, so Richmond would be Dusty Martin, Jack Rewald, Cochin and I guess Rance when Rance was playing sort of thing. So it gives you a great indication of who the coach thinks is probably the, the, the most indispensable players. You know, the ones that you know that if you get injured, you just can't replace them. You know, you haven't got another centre forward, you haven't got another centre back or, or whatever. So not necessarily your best players, but the ones that you go, we can't afford to lose this guy if we, we, we want to go further. So it's a great exercise. And I love it when I when I see that. You know, I think the commentators pick up on it now too and they go, oh, have a look at, you know, such and such is on the bench. And, yeah, we knew, oh, it's about time we've got to take him off. And sure enough, they're off in the next couple of minutes. It's Yeah, it's quite amusing. Well, that was kind of a good lead into the next question because I was going to ask you, who was the best player to coach? Look, I was extremely lucky. And the more I got into coaching... Yeah, the, the, the longer that I started coaching Sydney and then certainly going to Melbourne and then watching games and being a commentator and, and getting involved in, in the, the Kangas, North Melbourne, I, I understand how fortunate I was to have the players that played for Sydney. They were selfless. I mean, they were so selfless. Yeah, so you could go through every single one of them. I mean, we, we had a team, and I think it was Kirk, he said we had a team of Cortinas and West Coast had a team of Ferrari sort of thing. But the Cortinas just did what they had to do. And so it's really hard to single out any particular player and I normally talk about Leo Barry for different reasons because one of the arts of coaching is to put players in a position where they you you know they they can carry out that role but I asked Leo Barry to do something that he physically wasn't shouldn't have been capable of doing you know he's 184 centimetre 85 kilogram full back I mean he was playing on Lloyd and he played on Fraser Gehrig one day at the SCG and kept him kickless now, Fraser Gehrig's 196 centimetres and probably 105 kilos. So for that reason, it's a different answer. But I, but Leo did something that he had no right to do. Mickey O was probably the other one that it was a half-forward flanker and a great half-forward flanker. Then he started to get knee tendonitis, couldn't train. And we asked Mickey to play full forward. He couldn't train, so we had to put some weight on, you know, doing weight. So they were probably the two. Our bookends were such unusual players for those positions, you know a small undersized full back and an undersized full forward. And they were just exceptional players. So, but look, I couldn't speak highly enough of, of all the Sydney Swans played. And at Melbourne, I was lucky to, to coach some really good players at Melbourne that were different phases, but you know, Nathan Jones, I love coaching Nathan Jones. Um, you know, he transformed himself to a, you know, what he and I would, would always debate around what I thought he was going to be as a player and what he wanted to be. And we, had a lot of robust discussions and Jack Vine, I enjoyed coaching him and you know, there's a lot of other good players. So there's plenty of good players that I that I coached over the years. I guess one player that you coached that you wish you could have played alongside? Uh, one very yeah, good question, one player that I coached. I mean, probably the fact that I was a, a centre-half back. Yeah, you, and, you know, I played most of my time at centre-half back. Like Ty Canelli, you know, I love to play with Ty. You know, as a centre-half back, you know, you're always looking for someone that's got some speed that can carry and run the ball, get the ball out of your area, you know, deliver the ball. He had beautiful skills. Craig Bolton would have been great to play with as well. I mean, Bolts, you know, was a really good lockdown defender. I was, I was probably a bit more attacking. So to have, you know, a relationship with a defender that you knew could lock down a player, you know, consistently. Oh, I've already mentioned Leo. And I was fortunate to play with Gary Purd and Alistair Lynch, who were great defenders as well. So, you know, as a player, you're, you're probably looking to... Yeah, Neville Jetta. I love the way Neville Jetta played as a back pocket. You know, just a lockdown defender that, yeah, you could put you could put him on anyone and he put him to sleep. You know, he's such a great defender. So, again, as a centre back, you got that sort of mentality of what you know what player is going to make me better and help me fulfil my role. Uh, so, there's probably three or four players that I, I would have loved to have played with in, in defence. 
You touched on Brett Kirk, the uh, spiritual leader, I think he was dubbed, at uh, the Swans. Could you see him uh, taking uh, the senior coaching role at uh, the Swans if there was to be a similar transition from Horse to Kirky? Similar, obviously, you uh, from you to Horse? It's probably difficult for me because I haven't actually coached with Kirky. Like, in terms of the player, I mean, his values... Like, he's as selfless a player as I've ever coached. And, you know, what he did for the club and, you know, he played the opposition best midfielder every single week. He's All-Australian, best and fairest winner, you know, premiership, you know, obviously player, you know. So his credentials as a player is exceptional, but it's such a different skill set to be a coach. And I know he, he coached under Rossi Lyon. He's now coaching under John Longmire. So, look, I would have no idea as to what his skill set is in, in terms of his coaching. But as a, as a guy, as a person, as a player, as someone that I coach, I couldn't speak highly enough of him. Someone who spends a lot of time over in the States, uh, I mean, you was kind of first to adopt a lot of the playing styles and coaching techniques from American sports. I guess, but from a, a talent standpoint, do you think we will see more Americans as the years go on uh, come over to Australia and try their hands at Aussie rules and succeed? Yeah, look, I wish the AFL had a picked that up. I, I came over in 1999 and we and Paul O'Keefe, who's the president of the United States Australian Football League, he rang me and he said, Rusey, you heard you were here. I don't know how I got my number, to be honest, but he said, oh, would you like to come around and teach footy? And you have to explain, yeah, there is some clubs and this is what they do. We had a great conversation. So I travelled around. The AFL sent some money over to, to them and they funded the trip and I went around and coached teams and um, I coached the American um, national team, the revolution against Canada and Chicago, which was amazing. So I just wish the AFL had picked up the gauntlet back then because only 1% of American college athletes go and play in the pro. So 99% of these incredible athletes that I've seen over the years never get to go and play. So they're finished by the time they're 22. But, you know, there's obviously a lot of things the AFL had to do and it's very difficult to do that. You know, we've seen Jason Holmes, we've seen Mason Cox, um, but, they, but they probably just haven't put enough time and effort into doing it. The infrastructure's in America, the people are still here. There's a lot of Australians playing the game and, and helping out. But, yeah, if it's going to happen, it probably needs to be a, a, a significant investment from the AFL. And, and if it had happened in 1999, I've got no doubt whatsoever there'd be at least one player uh, at every AFL club and a very, very good athletic player that would be having a significant impact on the on the, on the the AFL industry. We were talking earlier about uh, COVID-19 having an effect on Australian football and all industries, uh, but we saw uh, WWE owner Vince McMahon, he's our second crack at the XFL, and that went bust, obviously, to COVID-19. So, I mean, you have a, a bunch of athletes that are kind of were left sort of... Uh, wouldn't say homeless, but we, um, we've, I guess we've had a gig, so to speak. Could there be potential talent uh, there that could uh, come over and uh, have a crack at Aussie rules? Yeah, look, I mean, as I said, it'd be a significant investment for the AFL. But I mean, I think the way they would need to do it is put someone on over in America and and just have a regular AFL camp. And you, you would, there's no doubt you'd be flooded with athletes continually. You know, you'd probably base yourself in in Los Angeles in the nice weather or wherever it was. And you'd just get athletes coming in and out. You'd train them. You'd work with them over a three or four year period or whatever. But it'd be an investment by the AFL. And if you did that, there's no question you would have some incredible athletes. And I've seen them, you know, over my, my, my sort of 30 years coming to America. And, you know, some of the athletes I've seen are just ridiculously off the charts. But you would have to, you know, train them consistently and it'd be a project, but it'd certainly be a worthwhile investment. But it is an investment and the AFL, you know, on the back of COVID, we've had a lot of people losing their jobs and, you know, they've invested in the women's football, which I think has been amazing as well. So it's going to be really difficult to do it now. You're kind of obviously part-time with North Melbourne at the moment, but is that something that you would like to be like, put your hand up and be like, all right, let me organize this or let me be at least part of something like that if they were to make that investment well i think as an industry in a whole there'll be a new way of doing things i mean it's very it's a big jump for an assistant coach now to a senior coach it's a huge jump you know and any person i've spoken to that's tried to find a coach over the last four or five years have said the same thing it's incredibly difficult because the skill set is so different um so i think there's going to be more and more roles for ex-AFL coaches to come in and do some consulting roles. Now, what that looks like over the next 
you know, one year, two years, five years, 10 years, I'm not 100% certain. So, yeah, look, when Ben reached out to me and explained what they're after and, you know, they have a really good self-awareness around where they're at as a footy club. So, look, who knows what I'll be doing? But, but I think as an industry, yeah, we'll be seeing more and more of those people getting involved in... And even if you look at the coaching over the last four or five years, you know, Chris Fagan gets a job after not being in coaching for a long period of time, but he's got, he's got a great skill set. I love the fact that Brett Ratton got another opportunity at St Kilda last year and did a fantastic job. David Noble. It's really difficult for that next level of assistant coaches to get the skill set to be able to do it. And it's certainly an AFL conversation. It's a conversation that the CEOs, the chairman and Gil have to have. How do we help these young assistant coaches become AFL coaches? Because it's a massive, massive jump. And it's a huge amount of pressure now put on by the media. You touch on something which uh, Rocket uh, mentioned as well. I mean, what job when you're like 34 and you have no experience uh, and, you, and you get a job? I mean, you know, that doesn't happen for CEOs or any other industry. So I guess, yeah, that's a, you know, like you hit the nail on the head that there needs to be a bit more training or education because uh, like you said uh, especially social media coming into play uh, I guess back in your day when playing if you had a bad game you were, you didn't have to worry about looking at your phone or that you, maybe a bad article in the back of the paper if that uh, but now you know social media you can contact people very quickly and it's a, it's a different world isn't it yeah and the betting I mean I think there was a recent there's a, um, someone went for abusing Dylan Grimes because I think he did something in the game or the free kick against Essendon or whatever which yeah, so there's betting involved in now and people have you know, got a vehicle that wasn't existed when Rocket and I were playing and certainly the early days of coaching for both of us. There was no vehicle to, to get to, to players. Now you can get to them through you know, Facebook and, and Instagram and these other social media platforms that, that exist. So there's a significant challenge that certainly I didn't have to face when I started playing in 1982 uh, for the Fitzroy Footy Club. Before we wrap up, because you've been very generous with your time, Paul, uh, your relationship with Kevin Sheedy, I said there at the top, he donned you the name The Sundance Kid. Um, I go back to 2003, uh, my peak fandom, I guess you could say. Um, practice games at uh, North Sydney Oval. I think uh, there was media before before that game promoting it. There was just a practice game. Uh, I think it was on Valentine's Day, so you came out with some flowers and gave that to uh, to Sheeds. Uh, you, you guys keep in contact, or I mean, it's an interesting friendship. Oh, look, he's one of the great people in in football, and. I've got a really good story about Sheeds and, you know, I think with Sheeds was very protective about his territory, but he was also aware of the game of AFL itself. Yeah, so we had some little run-ins, but we had some great moments. But one of the best things and the most selfless things that Sheeds did, and, and this, I would be, I'm forever grateful to Kevin Sheedy. You know, we, 2000, the end of 2002, when I got the job for 10 weeks and I didn't know whether I was going to take the job, we, we decided to take our our seconds players down to Melbourne for a, a, a look at the finals and take them around the clubs that were playing in finals and, and show them what AFL footy was all about. Cause we're a bit out of sight, out of mind. So we went to Windy Hill. We took them to the hall of fame, which is right near the ground there, right next to the ground. And we had about 10 or 12 players and Robert Shaw, my old senior coach was working for Essen at the time. And he saw me, he came into the, he came into the hall of fame and he said, Oh, Rusey, come up to the, I'll show you around the, the offices. I said, I'll oh, Sure, I know you guys are about to play a game on the weekend. I don't and you'll be fine. So, I, so Shorey invited the young players and myself, and we went up and we we walked around. And then I realised I went through, and I could see Sheeds and the players. And I, thought, I said, Shorey, look, hey, mate, we better get out of here. You about the train? He goes, Yeah, we're not far away from training, and we we're just about to leave. And Sheeds, hey, Rosie, and I thought, Oh no, nah. <laughs> I'm going to cop the biggest cook I've, I've, I've ever got. He goes, What are you doing? I said, oh, sorry, mate. Well, look, we're just going to head out. He goes, no, no, who, who you got here? Who you got here? So, look, we've just got our young players. We, we brought them up. Um, just going to watch your train, if you don't mind. He goes, would well, you want me to talk to him? And before I could sort of say, mate, hang on. you." He said, no, guys, come in here. Come in here. Come in. And he herded them into the, to the meeting room and shut the door. And I'm standing outside. And then James Heard walked out and goes, mate, I said, Rudy, he goes, yeah, g'day, Heard. What are you doing? He goes, I said, do you know where Sheedy is? And, then, and I think it was Dustin Fletcher walked out. And, uh, and he said, where's Sheeds gone? I said, oh, sorry, guys. I said, look, Sheeds has just grabbed all my young players. He's talked to them in the meeting room. 
and heard he's gone, mate, we're supposed to have a meeting right now. And I'm going, oh, I'm, and they were laughing and I was laughing and it was quite, but, it, but just that selfless act sort of sums up Kevin as territorial as what he was. And he's still very territorial about the Giants and some of the things that, you know, he, he's had a crack at me about certain things, but I will be forever indebted, you know, for, for you know, what he has given to the game. And, and that moment forever is cemented in my mind. Like Kevin Sheedy preparing his team for, for a final, he selflessly wants to talk to a group of young players from an opposition club and, 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 and give his knowledge to those players was just an amazing, amazing moment. So, look, I, I run into him every now and then, then in um, his favourite restaurant, I think it is. It's called Donovan's in um, in St Kilda. Great restaurant. I've seen him there a couple of times. And he's always, you know, very, very personal and just a great footy person. Because I think uh, Essendon, uh, back in the day, they tried to have some form of presence in New South Wales or a supporter base. So he was always, I guess, with uh, developing the game in New South Wales and then obviously going on to the Giants. But that story that you share there, I mean, I always remember as a supporter that Sydney and Essendon, there was a big rivalry there. So for him to be that open and talk to the reserves, it's, uh, it's a great sign of a great man. Yeah, absolutely. And I think he just had an incredible balance that he was, he was fiercely competitive like his teams that I I played against you know in the early 80s mid 80s they were ruthless you know Billy Duckworth and um, Stan Carey and and um, you know Ronnie Andrews and and Roger Merritt and Terry Danaher so he had this incredibly ruthless streak and competitiveness but he also had this ability to understand the bigger picture of the game and and where he wanted to take the game and where he saw the game and as fierce a rival as he was with Richmond or Collingwood or Sydney, who was an interstate club, he understood the, the position that they played in AFL football. It was never always about the Essendon Football Club. Um, and that's why he took the Giants' job. As hard as that job was, he took the Giants' job because he fully believed in a national competition. Ruzi, you've been gracious with your time. Thank you very much. All the best and thank Thanks for the 2005 Premiership. Yeah, thanks, mate. Terrific. Appreciate it. For the people who have waited 72 years to see South Melbourne slash Sydney Swans win the Premiership, here it is!